Welcome to Live Arts Market Pulse on the Artelligence Podcast. Each week, Live Arts sales team discusses the most important subjects in the ever-changing art marketplace. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. Welcome to another Live Art Market Pulse podcast. We are doing the post-New York sales again, this time with Lucius Elliott and Kelsey Leonard from Sotheby's, and of course, as always, George O'Dell from Live Art. I thought one of the places that we could start is by acknowledging this has been a, a, a an unusual season. So much of the season's total comes from the uh, uh, Paul Allen collection that that has changed the market share. Normally, you know, uh, Picasso, Monet, Warhol are the top artists by a long shot, and then season by season there'll be some particular artists who have a strong showing. But in this season, because of the very valuable works and the broad range of works uh, that Alan had, the top uh, uh, artists are Seurat, Cezanne, then Picasso, Van Gogh, Warhol, Gauguin, Interestingly, Willem de Kooning sold $114 million worth of art, a significant portion of that at Sotheby's. Uh, the, the list sort of goes down. Klimp, J- Jasper Johns, Lucian Freud, Giacometti. Some of that is the effect of the Solinger uh, uh, collection. So I thought with that in mind, since in many ways one of the great things that's been happening with the art market is it is being less dominated by those big names and there are more and more different artists that if we could drill down and really talk about some of the artists in these sales and get Kelsey and uh, Lucius, your take on what's going on in those markets. If we roll down the market share list in 15th position is David Hockney. And some of that's driven by the Hockneys in the Allen collection. But they're, they're just generally across the board, a lot of de- demand for David Hockney. And this is coming on now two, three years of uh, demand for, for Hockney. There was an earlier sale at Sotheby's. I think that was all prints. Uh, that was a white glove sale uh, earlier this uh, season. So I was wondering, uh, uh, either of you, but if Lucius, you want to start, uh, you know, what's going on with the David Hockney market? Well, I think at a, at a top level, you're spot on that we are now at a point where this is a market that's reached something of a maturity. I mean, this is a market that reset in 2017, 2018, around the time of the Tate show that then traveled to the map. Um, and we saw a number of huge prices from the Walgate Woods that we sold to the um, the Santa Monica Highway uh, through the portrait of an artist. And over the course of this year, not only in New York, between Allen and the flower portrait of still life in our sale, um, but also in London in October with the um, with the landscape and also the, the the two landscapes, the 60s landscape and the 70s landscape but at Sotheby's and our competitors. These are all works that have received a lot of depth of bidding. He's a hugely popular artist. He's a hugely recognizable artist. And I think as you go down that roll call of names that you just listed from many of which, as you say, are, le- are led by major works that came up in the in the Allen collection. Hockney, like those artists, is a very, very recognizable brand. And to me, you know, it's so popular, it's so colorful, it's so instantly recognizable that it's unsurprising that we've seen such depth of demand over so many years for his for his art and his market. And I think it's found its level now. Um, and we've seen some fabulous results. And do you feel that you see in that depth of bidding, you know, a kind of repeat cast of characters with a trickle of new bidders coming in? Or is the or do you find that 
either by date of the picture, be it newer or older, that you get a, a different kind of distribution of where that where those bids are coming from. It's hugely global. Yeah. yeah, it's really, really global. I think, you know, looking from Asia and UK clients who've been bidding on it for years, US clients and Europeans, I mean, across, again, just looking across both sales, and I can only speak, obviously, to, to Sotheby's bidders and buyers, but you really do see a whole spectrum of collectors. And I think that Hockney's reached that level where the appeal is sort of so universal, the recognizability is so universal and the images are so powerful that we really do see adaptive bidding. So of course there are uh, you know, there is there are people who we see bidding on the works regularly, either people who are bidding in depth to amass, you know, I think the thing that's remarkable about Hockney as an artist is how many times he's changed his practice over the course of his career. I mean, right. from the mid-60s, late 60s, 70s, etc., he's constantly evolving. Because you can you can have seven or eight Hockney paintings, and that's like a totally you, there's nothing duplicative there. Um yep. so you do see repeat buyers, but you also, I think. There, there's enough breadth and depth um, and global demand um, that, that we see new people each time or, or people who fail to get one last time to getting it this time around. And what about the consigners? Are these the kind of works that you, you know, sell something well, as you said, from some different sectors of his pra- practice? So these florals, uh, uh, you know, do well. Does that mean you have to go and look for another work that you think will satisfy some of the underbidders or people who are now, um, you know, educated about that market? Or are there consigners coming to you saying, hey, I saw that sold. I've got something that's better. Maybe, you know, we can get it in the next sale. I think, you know, our our business getting process is a combination of a combination of both. I mean, you know, large prices sort of will incentivize people to sell. And we do things, see things come out of the woodwork on that basis. But I think the key point with Hockney is that, you know, your buyer of a 1963 LA painting, is not the same buyer as your 1998 Grand Canyon. You know, there's a there, there, although there are some collectors who are buying across the board, there are also, you know, very specific markets for each section of his work. And the aesthetics are radically different. So I suppose if you have huge depth of bidding on one particular type of work, it behooves you to try and find another. Um, but I don't think you're limited to that because we always have other people who we can tap into and who will who will respond to to works that we've seen from a different period or phase of his career. Because you had that one shaped canvas followed by a second shaped ca- canvas. And so it, it feels uh, sometimes, and, and these often are coincidental, but it, it felt like that was, you know, one thing building on another. Do you guys think this um, recently announced immersive experience in London that is going to have like, I don't know, it's like a four-story height, a Hockney immersion experience. Is that something that will increase people's interest in the artist or is it just a sideshow? It's so funny because Lucius and I were just in the car together and drove past the, the former site of the Van Gogh immersive experience. Um, my feeling is a little bit, all press is good press. There's no such thing as bad exposure for an artist. And I think something like that I don't see it necessarily convincing a collector, but I do see it increasing sort of the household name value of an artist, which can only be a good thing for their market overall, the more people who are aware of him. And I, and I think this was very much confirmed by the Allen sale, and I think Lucia's touched on this, is that Hockney is not only one of the great you know painters of our age, but is going down as one of the great painters of the 20th century. And he will, I think that's what we're seeing is this continued strength in this market that confirms him as one of the greats. 
And we're seeing that in his collection by art collectors like Paul Allen, but also by the people competing for his works in those sales. And I think something like an immersive art experience only helps cement that feeling that he is sort of a, a treasure of art history and someone to be recognized as such. Uh, I think he's one of those rare artists that will actually be able to stand up to that kind of treatment. I mean, there's something, especially the the later w- works that that seems really appropriate for an immersive experience. Uh, but when it was announced, it looked like genius, to be honest with, with you. And I just, you know, I, I agree with you. It's, you know, the, the social value of art is underrated. And it's important that people know who these artists are, are and that they have cachet, because that still sort of builds up to the top of the pyramid. But it's, it's actually really interesting for Hockney specifically, though, because so much of his practice is about painting things from lots of angles simultaneously, like you totally. know, the breaking the breaking up of landscapes and stuff. So it's actually, as you say, Marion, it's it's singularly opposite for Hockney because that sort of idea of the breaking up of space and the video pieces and the exactly. multi-part canvases, it, it really makes sense to me, actually. I hadn't thought about that. His engagement with the digital sphere already from the iPad drawings to, you know, I mean, even his early work in photography, I think, is like it speaks to that kind of interest and that kind of understanding that our world is increasingly digital. And that's how many people are experiencing art. So we might as well integrate. <laughs> So speaking of integrating, uh, I also noticed in these um, market share numbers, you know, we talk often about uh, female artists not having the same market presence as their male counterparts. And obviously, uh, I think as Brooke Lampley said uh, recently, there's a long way to go to equity. But there were some interesting numbers in here. For example, you know, the O'Keefe uh, market is about the size of the Twombly market just this season. I mean, that's a couple of interesting things about what's going on there. But at the same time, the Gerhard Richter market and the Joan Mitchell market, the, there was the same volume of sales for uh, both of those uh, artists. And so, I mean, these are not these are definitely apples to oranges uh, comparisons. But it's interesting to see these artists get the kind of foothold in you know selling. Uh, there were nine different Helen Frankenthaler works uh, sold across the the sales. Real market presence that um, sort of makes them name brand uh, artists. And I, I just wasn't sure if that is something that is happening, kind of. Um, by happenstance or a product of this sort of general interest in people wanting to uh, have female artists, uh, uh, O'Keefe notwithstanding, especially abstract uh, female art? I think it's a bunch of things, several of which you touched on. Um, Part of it, I think, is directly linked to critical recognition. Um, You know, I I was just in Paris this fall, and the Joan Mitchell show was one of the most extraordinary exhibitions I've seen in the last couple of years. And I think that that is, we see that as being directly linked to market response, um, is that kind of attention and that kind of exposure. I also think, not to put too fine a point on it, these markets are undervalued. So you can buy an A-plus Joan Mitchell, an A-plus Frankenthaler for a lot less than you can buy Jackson Pollock or many of the, or Mark Rothko, many of these other artists who for many years have not been their equivalents, but, you know, and who knows if hopefully we'll get there one day. But I think that that's, that's part of it is I think it's just great advice to clients. If you want, you know, a amazing high caliber work it's still cheaper to buy a female artist the paris show did a lot to highlight you know if we talk about bifurcating different decades of work how strong late mitchell can actually be especially not, not even so much in the mitchell monet side of it but the the mitchell retrospective that was in the basement of the lvmh like 
that that the late Mitchell side of that show, not just the Grand Valets, but like the rest of the paintings that they included there made the case that she's an artist where you can collect 50s and deaths, but you could also singularly focus on the 80s and build some a pretty monumental collection, even the works on paper to that extent, that long hallway of works on paper was incredibly yeah. strong. Yeah, I think we still have a ways to go there, but I, I do think that show went a long way in doing exactly what you totally. said. Well, the 80s, the AZ's Mitchells seemed to really shine in that show. And it, maybe it's coincident, but uh, Roger Sant's uh, example did probably the best, both in terms of the highest numbers, but, you know, in terms of uh, selling against the estimates, um, uh, as well. And that just seems recognition of that kind of, uh, that body of work, uh, in her market. Let's bridge into, there seems to be a real taste for abstraction. I just pulled out of this, not just, uh, Willem de Kooning, but Elaine de Kooning's works did very well. Ed Clark did very well. Sam Gilliam, uh, we mentioned Frankenthaler. There were some strong Morris Lewis sales. So this, uh, abstract expressionism into color field painting, there seems to be a lot of interest in lots of different artists in this. And some of it is equity. I mean, I, I don't think we can lose sight of the fact that Ed Clark and Sam Gillian are African-Americans, but some of it is also seems to be they are just leading abstract or color field painters, and there's this broad uh, taste for that. And I was wondering, you know, K Kelsey, you had... Um, uh, before this, men, uh, mentioned some interest in the, this topic. I thought you could take us a little further. Uh, and if you don't mind, is this you know, give us a sense of what you're hearing from clients, either on the selling or on the buying side? Yeah, I mean, I think on largely overall, just the last couple of years, we've seen increasing demand for high quality, specifically color field examples, which I think has been somewhat, you know, perhaps undervalued compared to like the height of abstract expressionism. Um, but I also think. It's specifically at Sotheby's, I think the best example to point to is the Paley collection, which we had the uh, Morris Lewis, the Kenneth Noland, and the Albers. And then that Lewis also mirrored by the amazing Lewis that I made, I think, like five, six all in at Christie's. Um, they were all superb examples. And we don't necessarily see AA plus ABEX coming all the time because there's not as much of it in private collections. But it was nice to see the market really respond to these A plus examples of color field in this with really high demand and with really high prices. So to see, you know, we think of Morris Lewis as being quite an established artist, but the two of his, I think, second and third top prices were just achieved this like last week, which is sort of remarkable. Um, and the Albers was, I think, the fourth highest price for the artist, you know, things like that. So I think there's really, really good examples of it coming to auction right now through collectors, through, um, you know, specifically through these single owner collections. And I think we're seeing, even in what we're calling a very discerning market, a level of discernment where people are really excited about it, which is which is nice for us to see. Um, I also think Colorfield, and maybe Lucius can add on to this too, because I know he works with collectors who work in this sphere as well. Um, I think that Colorfield is, uh, can be a good like entry point for a lot of collectors. It can be, you know, not to call it like a, a gateway artist or artwork. So I think we see not only established collectors seeking an a plus Lewis Stripe, but we also see newer collectors who are maybe just entering the field who are able to get really excited about these things and imagine living with them for many, many years. Um, so I think in that way, uh, I think that really adds the popularity. But Lucius, I don't know if you have thoughts to add there. No, I, I completely agree. I think Morris Lewis is the breakout star of the auction season, to be honest. I think right? <laughs> there's two really, really exceptional prices for both the Stripe and the Floral Conveil painting at, at, at Christie's. So, um, no, a real, a real depth of demand. And I think it's something that we've been seeing really since the first sales we had during COVID when we had the Denny Williams sales. You know, a huge price for a Frankenthaler painting. And I think that's really kicked on. That's been buttressed and, and solidified by a number of sales 
not only a Frankenthaler, and that was also one of the first times that sort of we saw really significant deep bidding on 70s Nature's Mitchell. Um, but I think that in the interim, we've just seen a sort of series of spectacular prices for the for the artist and for those artists in that group of artists, whether undervalued or or just finally coming to sort of recognition and partly due to the caliber of works available. But those are those are linked, as you said earlier, Marion. You know, when you see a great price, more great paintings are likely to come out. And, and do you do you think it's driven, you know, start if you start with Williams, as you mentioned, and go forward to the last week's sales, you know, one thing we talk about here is is it great pricing pushing future consignments or is this collection collections coming to term that are heavy within color field whereas before we saw collections that were heavy in abex as we as those collections come come of age and it's time for them to sell or their disbursement plan do you think it's some of that now that we're hitting kind of 60s 70s heavy collections or is it really kind of wow factor one sale to the next i mean the answer can also be a blend of the two obviously yeah and i think unfortunately the answer is going to be a blend of the two because i think you know there there is there is truth to that and i think between the between the alden collection which had the the wonderful early frankenthaler and the paley group which had those three paintings that kelsey just mentioned you know that's a pretty that's a pretty sort of tight summation of of, of a portion of the movement and then adding in the washington color school stuff with with ed clark and sam gilliam you know from different consigners so I think it's it's a it's a combination of sellers taking advantage of a of a market that is amenable and, and has great demand for these works, um, and then yeah, some some degree of supply through estates or, or you know it's a combination of of estates and 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 people who who are making the decision to sell. So I think it's both. So the Morris Lewis was a record price for a stripe, I believe. Uh, the uh, one that you sold. And I, I, I wanted to bring that to you made a record price for Christina Quarles last season with that spectacular $4.5 million sale for that beautiful square uh, uh, painting. Sin- and and some of that seems to have been based, some of it was on the work. Uh, obviously, most of it was on the work. Some of it is on the um, consigner and uh, uh, the provenance that there. Uh, a lot of it seems to have been the impression people had from the Venice Biennale, where she had a whole suite of works, and I think that had a real impact on um, sort of the broader uh, uh, art world, but also uh, buyers. And then after that, she had this great show at Hauser, and there have been works that have been uh, sold. There were only two works in this uh, cycle. The other one did quite nicely, basically sold close to her previous high price, you guys achieved something that I think the market was kind of struggling to uh, to uh, see validation of, which is something above the primary prices and the old record, but maybe not as high, but somehow to make that less of an outlier. Um, and so I, I just wanted to, to hear a bit from both of you a little bit more about that that sale and what, you know, is, is that going to give the market more footing? Is there just, she's still a fairly young ar- artist and, you know, this is not necessarily a market that needs to accelerate. What do you think happens next with uh, Christina Coral? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, there was a the, the previous record for the artist that you mentioned was set a year ago in the first in the first now sale in New York, but then that record was dwarfed by the price by the price in May. And since then, you know, having been having had very very few works on the market, you know, an artist who probably first came to auction in 2017, 2018, but really had. Um, you know, no sort of breakout prices. What we saw in May was a breakout price, which was followed by a number of prices that were really significantly below those levels. Um, and I think what we've seen and what we saw in the sale last week 
is a sort of division of this market. I think at the very, very top, you know, the the painting that we had in May, which made this really extraordinary price, I think an outlier in a sense, but also a recognition of this being the sort of apex of the works that have come to market and remains the apex of the works that have come to market. And I think it is actually really due. It's 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 alignable to the quality of the works that have come up. Um, and I think that the work in the sale last week was comfortably the best work by the artist to have come to auction since that work in May. And I think that's why it made a price that that is sort of at a different level to a number of the ones that have come up in in London and in New York in the interceding five months. No, look, I think everyone looks at those $600,000 prices as if they're somehow a failure, but that was her previous re- record. And so all these works selling at that level confirms that that's a solid value for, for her, not that, I mean, the $4.5 million, look, maybe that is something that's throwing the ball out and trying to catch up to it, and it will take a wh- while. It certainly seems uh, like it is. But this at least reconfirms that there are people out there willing to pay you know, closer to two or clo- closer to halfway between than that, but also they're willing to pay the previous high price. So that's not a market failure in any sense. That's more, you know, regular confirmation. And I think some of this just needs, you know, she, uh, again, she needs to make the, the the work and there needs to be time for all that to filter through uh, uh, people's collections. Well, I was going to say also on the on the private market, I think there have also been other transactions that kind of validate that that higher end price. So, uh, can we switch back to uh, not back to? Can we switch to Lauren Quinn, who seems to be the kind of other artist out there who is getting a lot of traction? I mean, there there there's been good sales for Lucy Bull, but that that you know hasn't quite had the same upward uh, trajectory. But Quinn seems to not be in in the market sense be putting a foot uh, wrong. Uh, so I was w- wondering if you could give us a little more color on that mar- market. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think what we saw in in May or I think in March, the first work by the artist came to market, um, the first painting by the artist, I think at Phillips in London. Um, that was followed up in May with the work in work in our sale. And then there have been various others over the time and, they, and they've all attracted competitive bidding. Um, and the move to Blum and Poe definitely was a factor. A very well-reviewed show um, in May last year was definitely a factor. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, we've seen we've seen a lot of demand, and we see a lot of buyers and a lot of new buyers who are sort of entering and, and acquiring these works. And I think there's a there's a lot of buzz around her, um, and a lot of buzz around her still. And and as you say, I think it's a it's a market that's going from strength to strength. Even if that initial burst was at a higher level at auction, I think we're you know we we found as it were a new level. It's a very swift time frame in which to find levels. But um, no, it's a market that goes from strength to strength. But it, I think there seems to be, you know, between the sales that you guys had and at some of the other houses, we found, you know, stable footing in like the mid 150s to twos and sort of you striate that based on quality, you know, upwards and downwards and by scale as well. Um, and from from the other perspective, that seems to be where the private market has also landed kind of in that line. And then you watch what Blum and Poe has done in terms of the primary market pricing. And it all seems to kind of align very closely in that mid, you know, low to mid six figure numbers. It's kind of where the market seems to be settling itself out for the most part. That's that's my sense as well. I think that the, you know, there was the one in our in our day sale, the one in Phillips evening sale, um, and also the one we had in Hong Kong in October. Um, so there have been a fair few. So I think to establish and sort of solidify that that new price point, but I agree with you. I think that's the effect that, that seems like the price where we've landed now. And I and I wonder if we churned through all those initial works which were sold and sell out shows, but are now kind of pushed their way through the market and found new homes. So I wonder if we've we've seen kind of that initial flow so far. Well, I think 
that's something that often happens, right? Is that you see that initial burst and then you see an abatement of supply and then that actually, that limitation then in, that results to a, to a renewed increase in auction prices. We talked about this last week with regard to the Engineca Crosby as a like prime example of that happening where the, it was a repeat to auction piece down the road that made a bigger price. And we haven't really seen much Crosby on the market due to the fact that like the taps have been turned off for the most part and getting one is extremely hard. Um, you know, so some, some of these young artists where there was a flurry of material, like any young artist coming out, it seems like we flush through that and then it's, you know, it starts to slow and, you know, eyes become more astute to which one should go in which sales, et cetera. Yeah. And Andrew Decker Crosby, that, not just have you seen none, like there, there, yeah. that was really the first one I've seen on the market in four years. And then last time, last time you saw one on the market was that was one. Almost, was I think this one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, great thing. It, it did feel like there was a danger with that of, of kind of some sort of a buyer's strike, you know, that's just everyone's so afraid of it. So seeing that uh, 50% rise was a, a good confirmation. Um, I also noticed that there was uh, about nine Louise Nevelson works on the market, and uh, all but two sold at very strong multiples of um, the estimates. And I can't, you know, it's not like she's uncommon, but I don't feel like you see more than ones or twos in a normal season. And I was curious, you know, uh, uh, if either of you had a, a a sense of what might be driving uh, that. Is there a show that we don't know about at a museum? Is there, you know, something going on? Uh, or is this just one of those odd moments? I think part of the reason we saw quite a few this season was due to the Solinger collection. Um, Mr. Solinger was Nevelson's lawyer and thus had quite a few of her works. And I think that entire collection, but particularly the day sale was really priced through acute estimates. And I think that really helped. We saw extraordinary responses to those. They were really classic, high quality works and at the right price and the market really responded. Um, but I think her record was set not that long ago, I think in like last year in 2021. And I think it's it's large, part of a larger, again, this recalibration and greater recognition that we're seeing for previously undervalued female artists. Um, I think female sculptors, it's been a little bit slower to come than for some of the painters, but we're seeing it with obviously Nevelson. Uh, there were great prices for Bourgeois this season. I think, you know, the Asawa market continues to impress us. Um, and I think we'll, we'll keep seeing great prices for her. I think she, um, I think there's room to grow there, but it was really for us, really gratifying to see in terms of the Solinger works. Um, I know me personally, I had several collectors I work with who had never mentioned Nevelson to me ever before, kind of see them in the galleries and ask me what it was and ask, show interest and ultimately end up bidding on them. Um, so I, I think she's an artist who um, is honestly relatively accessible and it's easy to imagine living with them in a lot of ways. So um, I think, I hope we continue to see great prices. I think that we will if great works continue to come, but I think we just got lucky this season with the number of doubles. But, but you, but I think what you demonstrated is that there's appetite up and down the price spectrum. There's three works in the five-figure range. There's two works in the low six figures. There's uh, another, you know, four in the mid six figures. And there's one at almost 1.2 million, 1.15 or 1.116. That's a lot of different price po points. And it wasn't just with you. There were, you know, there was a white one, I think, at F Phillips. I mean, there, there were works around. And, you know, usually 
the danger when there's a lot of stuff on the market is the opposite happens, right? Is there just not enough buyers uh, there? This seems to, as you just pointed out, brought buyers in. And that's the best thing you can hope for. Someone coming in to look for something else, falling in love with a piece that they, you know, stumble by. And we all benefit from them, you know, there being a variety of price points because, you know, much as with Hockney or, you know, I think also very much, we didn't mention this, we spoke about maybe discussing Warhol. I think he's another artist that demonstrates this really well. When there are these different price points, we see really different kinds of collectors competing. Um, there's a Nevelson for, for everybody, just as there's a Warhol for everybody. We decided to lay off the Warhol because we did that uh, last week uh, to 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 a large extent. But no, I'm very impressed by. I, I think that uh, again in those market share things, there Warhol has been dormant for for quite some time, and it actually seems like the market's beginning to come back up and down that price spectrum. There are some very very expensive works which uh, uh, always you know both work through the system but give people different I- impressions. But in in the uh, broader market there's a lot of bidding for you know two and three million dollar warhols there are a lot of bidding for warhol prints um i i did think it was interesting the cecily browns that sold all sold well your um spectacular work i think sold nicely but uh looked like it was primed to really take off is that a like with the warhol a bit of a price point issue is that people are now looking for things you know that are you know in the six uh, and low seven figures rather than wanting to spend uh, six million dollars on a, a cecily brown lucius you want to take this one <laughs> of course i mean look we we saw there are there are plenty of people who are willing to spend that amount of money on on younger artists. And we saw that and we saw that throughout the sale. I think what we've seen over the last two years or so, maybe not even eighteen months, is a sort of we, a, a really new sort of like price point at the four and a half to six million dollar range for large scale Cecily Brown paintings, be they more recent works or older works. So they're from that sort of. 1998-2002 period, whether there's wonderful sort of like fleshy paintings or into the sort of more chalky ones that she does later on. So I think that across the sales, you know, we saw, you spoke about female abstract artists and there was a big group of sort of female abstract artists that I think did extremely well across generations, not just not just Mitchell and Frankenthaler, but looking at Jackton Humphreys and Cecily Brown and Amy Silman um, in our day sales, for instance, and, and, those, of our, and those of our competitors. Um, we did see a lot of depth of bidding as a rule on on Cecily and on Humphreys and on, and on Silman. And ultimately, it's it's image dependent. And I don't think that it's people necessarily are, are looking for works that are from a certain period or at a certain price point. Um, and I think ultimately, the market is quite, you know, it's smart. It, it's it's a fairly good adjudicator. And I think that, you know, we but saw in, in what people were responding to what people were thinking. Is it um, vulnerable to these sort of broader economic forces? I, I, just watching that, I thought that would, you know, uh, uh, a, a noted collector, the two top prices come from a, a noted Cecily Brown collector's uh, uh, collection. So there, there's some, you know, provenance value uh, there. And I saw your work as being, you know, set up to sort of challenge or exceed those. But then we're also in an environment where, you know, 
there's a lot of economic headwinds, uh, and I could easily see that you know some of those bu- buyers might be thinking, uh, you know, I can't remember what you're sold for, for, for but you know, uh, uh, I'll stop here, not because I don't want the work, but but because maybe I want to make sure I don't spend that much money on a painting, uh, you know, when I don't know what 2023 is going to be like. Look, I think that was a factor across the auction season and across and across paintings, you know, and and across works and across sales. You know, the work sold four and a half million dollars. It went to an Asian private collector and one of the things that was actually very interesting in the in the now sale just to deviate briefly but I will come back um is that is that you know the actual amount of, of Asian buying in the sale was far greater than any previous iteration of it um we'd always seen a lot of participation but this was the first time we saw a lot of a lot of works actually heading to Asia and that's where the winning the winning bid was placed there are headwinds obviously this is a different macro situation that we find ourselves in now as we were versus where we were six months a year ago um, but I actually think these sales as a whole, you know, less sort of specific examples, but taken as a whole, the last two weeks in New York between Allen and, and also the sales of Sotheby's, Christie's and Phillips are an astonishing endorsement of the resilience of the art market. And that was my main takeaway. It was like how remarkably strong it was in the face of that, all those, all those murmurings and everything else. I, I was just going to say quickly on the Cecily Brown thing, you know, we see no abatement of requests for people looking to buy at you know from the small paintings at the three hundred thousand dollar level to the low millions. It's it's almost much like a mortgage rate. People are just going to have to get used to the new the new price point, absorb it, and then come back into it. So, I think that's just the name of the game. There, it's like she she keeps her primary market artificially low, even if it's an incredibly high wall to climb to get in there. And the other side, the other side of that is people are just going to have to get used to higher expectations to buy. So I, and I do think that the Asian buyers was the kind of missing piece to the final sales, right? So the last couple of evening sales seem to be missing that last little bit of swing money from Asia. Uh, and I don't think the stat showed that there was much participation from uh, Asia in the, those uh, sales either. So you mentioned Salman Tour. I think that's a great place for us to end. And I know George has been talking about uh, the Salman Tour market. You went and you took a guy who's had a great run, a couple of great museum sh- shows, and it seemed to have a market that needed to taper off, and you set a significant new record uh, with his work. So is that, I mean, I think a lot of it's that work, uh, obviously, but also tell us about the Salmon Tour market. I mean, I think firstly, just to pay, give credit to that work, I think it is I, I, I think he's a titan of a painter. I love I love his work. And I think that that painting is, is really one of the best ones I've seen by him. Really was the first thing you saw when he went into that show at the Whitney a couple of years ago. And I think really the thing that's held it back in terms of sort of new horizons in the market is that the last, to my mind, fully indicative Salman Tour painting to have come up was in May 2021, which was the, the arrival. Um, what we've seen since are just a different part of his practice, less where he is now, less what's in the Baltimore show, less what was in the Whitney show. Um, these more sort of, I always think of them as sort of Pusa inspired paintings, um, much softer, not on, not on board, not on, not on that. I think the beauty of his painting is that he paints like Peyton so much on the surface, as in, you know, it paints on board or on gessoed canvas that the paint sits right on the surface and feels like it's almost still tactile and wet, like a Cecily Brown from the late 90s. He- he had all these academic kind of, I called them at one point, like modern Orientalist paintings, right? Despite him not being a to- total Westerner, but they had this kind of like, they were these almost biblical-esque scenes, but there were car keys and, you know, people had taking tea under the trees. And it, 
you know, these were these were things that you might see in like if they were older and kind of you know mid mid season kind of random auctions rather than <laughs> front and center in the day sale. So to get back to these classic, you know, the classic green hues and the very you know, I mean, again, this is an iconic picture by the artist, but to get to get back to that level of painting and that quality and that pedigree. I think justifies the price that you guys were able to achieve with it. But there was, for my, to my mind, there was this fear that we were just going to get inundated with more academic early work. And that was which just- Which is all we'd seen for 18 months, you know, which is yeah. what we'd seen for 18 months. But then both, I mean, and our competitors had a good price as well for a, for a, um, for one of the later paintings. I don't know the exact year of theirs, but they did, they did well with it at Christie's yeah. in their, in their 21st it's century tw- sale. There's a 2019 for four guests and that made 856,800. Yeah, which is a, which is a, which is around, I mean, it was larger, I suppose, the arrival but a, but a strong but a strong price but no the the four friends really was a was a breakout but i think that is that's testament to the work but i think it is also a factor that the works that had come up in the interim were just in terms of all these museum shows and i think what's so exciting about Salvatore and a number of artists included in the sale um is that these are artists have had huge institutional recognition at a very young age um but the works that they've had institutional recognition for in the case of Salvatore, at least are these I don't know exactly when the sort of transition happens, but let's say 2018, 2019 paintings. And that is what the market have been starved of and, and why we were able to achieve such a great price in the sale last week. Well, and and not just those two, but then the two below them, there was a 450,000 or 500. I mean, it's it's sort of across the board. I don't know whether it's the halo because you guys went early and that kind of gave pe- people confidence uh, to go a bit higher. But what previously had been the highs is now kind of the mid uh, uh, price. And and usually we'll we'll see how next year shapes up, but usually that begins to set up everyone's, um, you know, how, how they value works going to market based on uh, their similarity to previous uh, works. Well, we've got a lot of disappointed tour underbidders. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody listening has one, <laughs> expect to see more. Then I mean, just that 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 is literally the recipe for more. We hope. Well, on on that note, I will say thank you, Lucius and Kelsey. I really appreciate your time. It's our pleasure. Thank Thank you so much. George, I I will see you next week. I'll see you next week, Marion. Talk soon. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for Live Arts Market Pulse. The Artelligence Podcast is edited by Colin Ketchum, who also composed the original music. Come back next week, and don't forget to download the Live Art app or visit us at liveart.io. 